Philosopher George Santayana said, "Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it." But what would happen if there were no history to learn from? The Bible records some four thousand years of history. Even most non-Christian historians, archaeologists, etc., would agree that there is approximately two thousand years of history between Jesus and the patriarch Abraham. A simple addition of the genealogies from Abraham to Adam provides us with another approximately two thousand years. So fully, half of the recorded time in the Bible occurs in Genesis chapters one through eleven. Clearly, this must be an important part of our history. Genesis, history or mystery, written by Calvin Smith. Many Bible scholars and commentators would declare that Genesis one through eleven is just a metaphor, allegory, poetry, mythology, that it cannot be understood as history as plainly written, even though they profess the Bible as the Word of God. It's notable that none of these compromises was thought of before the rise of uniformitarian geology. For more about this, check out the article "Philosophical Naturalism and the Age of the Earth." And we see this in the excuses that are made for denying that God's word means what it says. God's upper-level activity of issuing creative fiats from His heavenly throne is pictured as transpiring in a week of earthly days. Is a literary figure, an earthly, lower-registered time metaphor for an upper-register heavenly reality. The study of paleontology has rendered it virtually impossible for a serious scientist to make a case for a six-day creation about six thousand years ago. The first chapters of Genesis should use the kind of language technically known as mythological to explain the origins of the universe. Many Christians believe the days described in Genesis were perhaps millions of years of undetermined time, rather than twenty-four-hour days. They also claim that there are gaps in genealogies, although once again, no one saw them before the rise of modern uniformitarian geology, precisely because they are not in the text. Many also deny the global flood, saying what is described in the Bible can be interpreted as merely a local event somewhere in Mesopotamia. But is Genesis really that hard to understand? Apparently not. It is, of course, admitted it would be most natural to understand the word "day" in its ordinary sense, but if that sense brings the Mosaic account into conflict with facts, and another sense avoids such conflict, then it is obligatory on us to adopt the other. The most straightforward understanding of the Genesis record is that God created heaven and earth in six solar days; that man was created in the sixth day. Then death and chaos entered the world after the fall of Adam and Eve. Then all the fossils were the result of the catastrophic universal deluge, which spared only Noah's family and the animals therewith. So the reinterpretation of Genesis is the result of Christians accepting the evolutionary dogma taught in public schools and through the media and trying to fit it into Scripture. But an abandonment of Genesis one through eleven as real is an admission that approximately fifty percent of the time record in the Bible isn't real history. How then can Christians that say that half of the Bible's history is just a metaphor or cannot be taken as plainly written really expect intelligent people to accept the other half as real 
events that are critical to salvation, atonement, etc. Thomas Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, wasn't impressed with this attitude, and he pointed out inconsistency in books and lectures over a hundred years ago. I confess I soon lose my way when I try to follow those who walk delicately among types and allegories. A certain passion for clearness forces me to ask bluntly whether the writer means to say that Jesus did not believe the stories in question or that he did. When Jesus spoke, as a matter of fact, that the flood came and destroyed them all, did he believe that the deluge really took place or not? If Adam may be held to be no more real a personage than Prometheus, and if the story of the fall is merely an instructive type, what value has Paul's dialectic? Huxley was intellectually consistent and made valid points, which many skeptics have repeated since. It becomes clear now that the whole justification of Jesus' life and death is predicated on the existence of Adam and the forbidden fruit he and Eve ate. Without the original sin, who needs to be redeemed? Without Adam's fall into a life of constant sin terminated by death, what purpose is there to Christianity? None. And Charles Darwin's modern pit bull terrier, leading misotheist Clinton R. Richard Dawkins, said the following. Oh, but of course, the story of Adam and Eve was only ever symbolic, wasn't it? Symbolic. Jesus had himself tortured and executed for a symbolic sin by a non-existent individual. Nobody not brought up in the faith could reach any verdict other than barking mad. So what are the conclusions that many have made? The biblical story of the perfect and finished creation from which human beings fell into sin is pre-Darwinian mythology and post-Darwinian nonsense. The virgin birth, understood as literal biology, makes Christ's divinity, as traditionally understood, impossible. The view of the cross as the sacrifice for the sins of the world is a barbarian idea based on primitive concepts of God and must be dismissed. Resurrection is an action of God. Jesus was raised into the meaning of God. It therefore cannot be a physical resuscitation occurring inside human history. Are these quotes the ranting of an ardent atheist? Well, yes, but they are from a Christian bishop, John Shelby Spong. A detailed refutation of his works is available in the links of the show notes. Heretical as they are, these conclusions are the inevitable end results of applying the idea of millions of years and evolution to Scripture. The Bible gets modified while the belief in evolution remains. Most Christians in the Western world would admit that despite many Christian influences, churches, schools, radio stations, bookstores, and the like, the culture is becoming less Christian all the time. As God's people, we must make a united stand to affect those around us for Christ, but that stand can only succeed if it is based on the authority of the Word of God. As a non-believer growing up, I was not impressed by what I saw in the hypocrisy of Christians wanting me to believe one area of the Bible as plainly written while squirming and reinterpreting other parts. I was an atheist, but I wasn't stupid. Atheists know that without Genesis as history, Christianity will fall. No wonder the opponents of Christianity have applied so much effort to discredit this area of Scripture. Christianity is, and it must be, totally committed to the special creation as described in Genesis, and Christianity must fight with its full might, fair or foul, against the theory of evolution. 
I couldn't agree with this atheist more. No book has impacted humanity like the Bible. Yet the comment that the Bible is just a book written by men is often used by skeptics to discredit Scripture. Every Christian should be able to defend why they trust the Bible as the very Word of God. Our booklet, How Did We Get Our Bible, demonstrates historically and practically how the books we have today came to be the Bible, the biggest selling and most read book in human history. Christians will be encouraged in their faith by having adequate answers to defend their belief in the authority of Scripture. But not only will you discover how we got our Bible, but along the way, you will learn the ultimate reason why God chose to communicate with His creation. This booklet is ideal for those new in the faith and will also be suitable as a witnessing resource to non-believers. You will find How Did We Get Our Bible at creation.com store. I am Joseph Darnell. From everyone at creation.com, thanks for listening.